17, we are going to look at the third church in this list of seven, a church by the name of Pergamum. And Pergamum, I would label today, I've tried to give you a label or a tag to go along. So Ephesus was the loveless church, Smyrna was the faithful church, and today we're looking at Pergamum, which doesn't have the best of titles, the worldly church or the compromising church. So stand with me, if you will, one last time, if you're able to, and let's read together verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, again, we ask your blessing on your word, that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts, draw and convict, rebuke and exhort, edify whatever is needed today, Lord. I pray that you would increase as I decrease, and we give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I've done in the past few weeks, I like to try to give you a little bit of a historical background without boring you to death with the details, but I think it's vital for us to understand the times and the culture with which these were written, as well as the application to the people of that day, before we can try to make application to ourselves some 2,000 years later. So Pergamum was a city that really rose to power and greatness during the time of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. He was the one that really established it and set a lot of the things up before Rome would conquer and take things over there. The thing about Pergamum that makes it a bit different is it was seated a 1,000 feet above the valley below on top of a mountain I guess or a a high hill at least you could call it and so because of that it was a very fortified area it was it was something that was very defensive if you will they could see for literally hundreds of miles out into the Aegean Sea and different areas so if someone was coming to attack there was plenty of warning which is one of the reasons why Alexander and the great military mind that he was used this place as as one of his key cities, if you will. Uh, Pergamum was a very affluent city. A lot of money was there. It was very rich and a wealthy place. And you can see that today by some of the architecture that is there. There was a massive library in the city of some 200,000 books. Now that may not sound like a lot by today's standard, but if you think about the fact that those were 200,000 books written out by hand on papyrus or later on parchment, which parchment was actually invented in Pergamum. Parchment was the skins of animals. So before that they wrote on papyrus, which was a paper-like material. Now they've invented um, parchment and they're writing on that. So you can attribute that to Pergamum. They also had five theaters there so they were a culture that liked to be entertained there was a lot of entertainment going on and people would frequent there to see these plays and different things they also had a 10,000 seat amphitheater I believe there may be a slide 
with some of these pictures on here. So this first photo is what's called the Acropolis. That's the highest point in the city. So people would have gathered here. There were some temples to people like Zeus and Dionysus and Apollo. So those were places where they'd gather at this high part of the city. There is the amphitheater kind of down the side of the hill, and you can see off in the distance just how far people were able to see. So if any attack was coming, uh, you would know well ahead of time. Now, this last slide, I want you to just take a look at that for a minute, and I want you to notice what is on the staff there that's wrapped around, because this will come back into play in this message a little bit. So down the hill from where you saw that amphitheater, there were these healing pools, if you will. It was almost like a modern-day spa, medical spa, if you will. And these were called the Asclepion. It was named after a guy named Asclepius, who was the son of Apollo. And his mother died, supposedly in Greek mythology. His mom dies at birth. And so Apollo gives his son the, the ability to heal people. And so... They set up these things, these pools. There were underground tunnels where people would go and, and sleep and meditate. But one of the things you might say, well, that sounds pretty good. You know, you can go and get in the hot spa. And, and you know, some, of, some believe this is where the fountain of youth idea might even came from and different things. And you can go down into these underground caves and sleep and, and relax. And, and all that sounds really good. But in that picture, if you notice, did you see what was wrapped around the staff there? The serpent, the snake, that was very prominent in Pergamum, especially in these healing pools, because they believed that the serpent pictured regeneration. It would shed its skin as a, as a type of regenerating, if you will. And so one of the things that they would do is they would go into these rooms underground and they would spend the night there sleeping along with a hundred or so of their good friends, the little snakes. Now, they were non-poisonous snakes, but that doesn't matter to me. I don't know about you, but poisonous or not, I'm not spending the night in a room full of snakes. But they believed that as they laid in this room, as the snakes would crawl over them, that was providing healing and regenerating to them. And in the morning when they woke up, if they had dreamed, they could go to the shamans or whoever it was there that would interpret these dreams for them. And through that process, they would be restored physically, mentally, and physically. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like an experience that I would want to partake in. And obviously, there was more than just the physical going on there. There was a lot of religious rituals. There was a sacred path that they had to walk down to get into this. So a lot of false gods were worshipped and things. And at the end of the day, guys, I believe there was a lot of demonic activity going on in this place. And I believe that's why we see the Lord Jesus riding through John giving this message here to John uh, and saying the things that he does. So we'll touch on that, but I think it's important you understand that as we look at this message to see what was going on in that area. And I think it brings to light, uh, in their culture especially, why the warnings were coming to this city. So that, that is kind of the background of Pergamum. And now I want to get into this text a little bit this morning because as it starts out with all these churches, Jesus the glorified Jesus is giving this message to John and he says to the angel, we talked about that word in the Greek, it's angelos. It can mean a heavenly being or it can mean an earthly messenger. Sometimes pastors are called messengers, apostles are called messengers. So there's a disagreement as to whether this was an actual angel or a pastor of a church, a messenger to that church. It doesn't change the meaning to the angel, the messenger of the church and Pergamum. Right, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. So again, I want to reiterate that as we look at these 
letters. And even as you study the, the Revelation, the book of Revelation itself, guys, as a believer, this is not a book to make you fearful. This is a book to encourage you. This is a letter of victory to the church. It's a letter of warning and judgment to a lost and dying world. We had a great Sunday school lesson this morning, and we talked about the fact that as we as believers, we are ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. We are ready as His people to go home to be with Him. But there's a part of us that is fearful, not for us, but for those we love who aren't ready for that day who aren't ready when the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be left behind, who will face the judgment of God and the tribulation here on earth. That's why we take this so serious. That's why we implore you today to turn from your sins and to trust Christ. Because we don't know the exact moment when the Lord Jesus will return, but it's closer today than it was yesterday. And if He tarries, it will be closer tomorrow. And so we've got to be ready. And so Jesus is saying to them that again, He sees everything. He knows what is going on in His churches. He is aware. He's not distant. He's not detached. He is concerned for the church. He is actively involved in the life of the church. And that's why it's so important for us to be faithful. It's important for us to be good stewards. It's important for us to be obedient because God is taking an inventory of what's happening in our churches. And that's made up of individual believers. He sees your life. He cares for you. He cares about your life. And as His children, He wants you to walk in obedience. He wants you to walk in truth. And so thank God when we stray, He does draw us back by whatever means necessary. It's easier to avoid that by not straying to begin with. But we all do. And the Lord sees that. He gives the warning to this church or the edification to this church, it's the words of Him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. That may be familiar language to many of you that have spent time in the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, I want to read this from the New King James Bible. It says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any, here it is, any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God not only corrects your thinking, it changes your heart. It is the power of God. It is a sharp, two-edged sword. So often we take the Word of God flippantly. So often we think, if only God would speak to me. If only God would give me clear direction. My friends, He has. He's given us all we need in the Word of God. We are so blessed to live in a time where we have such access to the Word of God, yet we are so shameful, if you will, because we are so ignorant of this thing. It, there is no excuse for us as believers with the amount of study materials and Bibles and, and all the things that we have to be so ignorant of the truth. We have got to be diligent. We have got to be committed to this thing. It's not just a storybook. It is the very Word of God. He says it carries His authority. When we read from this book, we are hearing from the authority of God Himself. It carries that power. It carries that with it. It's not just words on a page. It carries His instruction for us. It's living, or literally it's life-giving and powerful. If you will search the Scriptures, you will find Jesus Christ on every page. And if you will trust Jesus Christ, you will see that real life will become yours through faith. And as you read this Word, you will grow stronger in your walk. 
and you will grow closer to the Lord Jesus. But you've got to make that commitment. I've never met a person yet that is walking close with the Lord and growing in that relationship who doesn't take time in the Word seriously. And I've never met a person, on the flip side of that, that does, does take this seriously, who isn't growing closer. He's getting closer, they're getting closer every day by spending time. Even if you don't necessarily understand everything you're reading. By making the effort, by praying that the Spirit would open your eyes, you will make progress. But you have to put in the effort to do so. Jesus says to them, I'm coming, I see what's going on, I'm coming with the, the authority of my word, what I say brings power with it. And so he tells them, I know where you dwell. I want you to see that, because in our English translations, we miss some of the force of that. There's two different Greek words for dwell. There's one that means to set up a temporary dwelling, and then there's another that means to make a permanent residence. Jesus says to them, I know where you have set up your permanent residence. So he's telling this church, you've been, because remember right now he's giving them a commendation. He's going to confront them on some bad things in a minute. But right now he's talking about good things. So he says, I know that you have set up residence here. In other words, you're not fleeing when trouble comes. You have stood strong and faithful in this thing. You have seen the evil and the wickedness, and you have stood toe-to-toe with it. Church, we need that today. As the world grows more and more evil and wicked, how much longer will the church continue to retreat? At some point, church, we have got to say enough. I think because we are called to be people of love and grace, and we should, but that doesn't mean that we continue to roll over and allow evil and wickedness to run rampant while we do nothing. It's time for the church of the living God to rise up and take a stand and say enough. I was so glad, I hope you don't mind Loretta, but Loretta shared a little bit of a story where her work was trying to make her do some things uh, that were against her beliefs. And she stood up and said, I don't care if it costs me my job, I am not going to sit through and be a part of this. Now listen, that's scary. That, that's going to cost you something. But Jesus said following Him is going to cost you something. For too long, it hasn't cost us anything. It's easy to be a Christian when it doesn't cost you anything. But when things start to get a little bit squeezed around you and the fire gets turned up a little bit, that's when you'll find out how much you really believe this. When it might cost you your job, when it might cost you your friends, when it might cost you things that you care about. Are you still going to stand with Jesus then? Or are you going to compromise? Or are you going to remain silent? I think that's the biggest problem. The churches remain silent because we want the world to like us. And Jesus has already said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. There is no way that you will ever make the world love you or like you unless you agree with it. And if you agree with it, you're going against God. Just like we read in those confession verses. If you love the world... The love of God is not in you. You're going to have to make a choice. And this church was standing firm in the midst of all of this. They, were, they had decided that they weren't going to tuck tail and run. They were going to stand firm. He says, I know where you dwell. Now listen to this. Imagine this being said about your city. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Imagine if your city was the place where Satan's throne is. Now again... I think that there's a twofold reference going on here. 
I showed you the picture of that high place where people would gather. In that area was a gigantic temple to Zeus. It was 100 feet square and 40 foot tall. And the people would go there to worship Zeus. But there were other gods there that they worshipped. Dionysus was the god of wine. And so they would go there and get drunk and do all sorts of other things as they worshipped that god. There was, of course, a temple set up to Caesar, who was Domitian at the time. And once a year you had to go in, offer your pinch of incense on the altar, and say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. They didn't care how many gods you had as long as Caesar was number one. And so this is the situation that these Christians are facing. They've got the Jews against them because these, Christian, these Jewish Christians have left Judaism to become followers of Christ. And so they've forsaken the law and the Old Testament ceremonies. So they're being persecuted by the Jews. The Romans are against them because they won't bow to Caesar as God. So they've got them against them. So they're outcast. They're facing it from every single direction. You talk about the heat being turned up. These Christians understood what was going on. But I want you to see that behind all this was the real enemy. Behind it all, behind the Roman persecution, the Jewish persecution, the false God worship, was the devil himself. And we need to understand that today, church. There are going to be people and people groups that come against the church. And oftentimes we want to go to war against the people. We want to go to war against the same human being that's made in the image of God. Lost, maybe, but still created in the image of God. All of us at one time were lost. All of us at one time were deceived. All of us at one time were dead in trespasses and sins. And we've got to understand that there is an enemy who wanted to keep us lost and wants to keep them lost. And the easiest way to keep somebody lost is to keep entertaining their flesh and keep giving them opportunities to do everything that feels good in the moment to keep you from forsaking those temporary things and turning to the Christ who offers you eternal forgiveness. It's sometimes easy to think, well, I want to live life. I want to enjoy things. I want to go out and have a little fun. Right? And as a Christian taking a stand often means that you are alienated from all, or the majority at least, of what everybody else is doing. You young people probably feel that, no doubt. And even as adults, we feel that. When we look around and everywhere we see, people are drunk and partying and doing this and doing that, and we think, man, I just sit at home on Friday night and don't do anything. I'm just pretty boring. I'm okay with being boring. I am. I, I Listen. I was drunk more times than I can count. I was high more times than I can count. I've gone out and done just about everything that you want to do, and I'm not boasting in any of that. But before I knew Jesus, that was the life I lived. And when I met Christ, there was a decision that had to be made. And I decided that I was going to follow Him. Imperfectly, but I was going to follow Him to the best that I could. And there have been times where I've failed Him, and there's times where you're going to fail Him. But the course of your life will change when you follow Jesus. And can I tell you this, if you're here today or you're watching online and you're playing a game, you're going to have to get one foot in on both sides. You're not going to be able to keep doing this thing. It's exhausting to come here every Sunday and try to pretend that you're somebody you're not. The weight of the guilt and the shame of knowing that the rest of the week or, or even now you're playing a, playing the role of a hypocrite 
It's exhausting. You can have the real thing. You don't have to just pretend. But you've got to make a decision. People always say, well, it's easy to follow Jesus. It's easy. He paid the price and he did everything and he did. There's nothing you need to do to earn your salvation. But it is going to cost you something. I'm not going to stand up here and say that following Jesus won't cost you something. It may cost you everything. It may cost you everything. We're going to see a man here named Antipas. It cost him his life. There are many believers that it cost their lives. So don't think for a moment that following Jesus is just a box that you check and everything's going to be easy. You've got to decide today what is more important, this world and this life or eternity in the kingdom of God. You can't invest in both. You are either laying up treasures here or you're laying up treasures in heaven. You are either following Christ or following the world. But you can't do both. You can't. No man can serve two masters. Which one are you really following? Which one are you really living for? These people were in the middle of Satan's throne. There was all kinds of evil and wickedness. I look at this world sometimes and I just think, man, I don't know how much longer I can take it. I don't know how much longer God can take it. If Billy Graham said, if God, and this was back 30, 40 years ago, he said, if God doesn't judge America soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I believe that's true. And I think, man, there is no way that he can watch this much longer without coming back or at least taking care of the mess that we are in here in this country and even in this world. But these people are right in the middle of it too. We're not facing anything different in a sense than what they faced. It may look a little different culturally, but they were right in the middle of this. And you've got to understand that behind all that is a real enemy, guys. He hates us. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil doesn't like anything about you because you're united to Christ. And so he wants to do everything he can to cause you to fall away, not lose your salvation, but to fall away from serving, fall away from faith, to steal your joy, to take your assurance, to rob you of your peace, to cause you to lose your testimony. Anything he can do to make you stumble, he's going to do it. And he does that by presenting you with opportunities to live for the world, to go back to where you used to be, to go back to that place. And if you're lost, to keep you there, to try to make you convinced that the world is better than Christ. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You've got to make a decision what's more important, this temporary, finite life, or the eternal, infinite life. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says there, in the case of those that are lost, look at what he says. The God of this world. That's the enemy. That's who's behind all this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We often say, man, why... Don't people wake up? Why can't people see what is going on? That's why. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. If you went to a blind person and said, can't you see how beautiful it is? No matter how much you yelled at them, how much you described it to them, they can't see it. And no matter what you do, until the Spirit of God opens someone's eyes and mind and softens their heart, they are blinded to the truth. But that's why it's so important to keep praying and to keep preaching the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You're not going to be able... I can't put together a, an eloquent enough service to say all the right words to save anybody. 
I plan and I pray and I prepare and I do the best I can to bring this thing out so that you can understand. But if the Spirit of God isn't in it and He's not moving, I'm just up here giving you a speech. It's not going to do anything unless God is working on your heart and I pray every week that He is so that the veil is removed, so that you can see, so that your heart is softened, so that if you need to repent of something or get right with God, that today would be that day. Because I understand all too well that we are in a war, and there is a real enemy, guys, and we had better take that serious. The God of this world is active today. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul says it a different way. He says, speaking to believers now, but talking about before they were believers, he said, in which you once walked following the course of this world, listen, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? The enemy. Again, Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The enemy is at work constantly. He has a whole host of demons at his exposure to go and go out, disposal to go out and do these things. So we see this evil and we see this wickedness, guys, and we've got to recognize where it's coming from. We can't fight this fight in the flesh. We have got to fight in the Spirit. Ephesians, flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against those cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That and four. Listen, though we walk in the flesh, that means we're living a earthly life we're not participating in the deeds of the flesh but we are living we're living breathing human beings in the flesh we walk in the flesh we are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds when sin has such a grip on someone's life the only way that that is going to be torn down is through the power of the word of god through prayer through spiritual things it's not going to happen by us trying to do it in our own strength. And again, we talked about this on Tuesday night in our men's group. Men are so guilty sometimes of trying to be fixers of everything. And whenever there's a problem, including a spiritual problem, we just set out to try to fix it. And we won't want to ask anybody for help. We don't want to turn to anybody else. We just want to fix it. There are things in your life that you can't fix. There are things in your life that are only going to be fixed when you repent of that sin, when you go to your brothers and sisters and allow them to minister to you, and most of all, when you turn to Jesus and let the light shine in and expose those areas where you've been too proud to lay it down. That's how you're going to get victory over those things. It's not comfortable, it's not easy, but I promise you it's worth it. You've got to make that decision. Because here's the thing, guys. Satan does not care if you fight the wrong battles with the wrong weapons. He knows you're not going to make any progress. You can go to war every day in the wrong fight and Satan could care less. You've got to fight with the right weapons and fight the right battles. Recognize who's behind it all. These folks were right there in the middle of this. And he says they held fast to his name. Do you see that there? In the midst, right in the middle of the seat of Satan where his throne is, they held fast to his name. Hundreds of gods were worshipped in Roman culture. Egyptians had gods. Greeks had gods. Romans had gods. And in the midst of all that, where there was a God for every need that you wanted, they held to the one true God. They held to the name above all names. They held to Yahweh alone. And you have an opportunity every day in this life to worship a lot of things. But my question is, will you hold firm, hold fast to His name, no matter what comes against you? They didn't deny the faith. They were bold in their witness. One of those names was Antipas. Think about this. 
2,000 years ago almost, this man was martyred for the faith. And his name is recorded for all of eternity in the Word of God. He was a faithful witness, a faithful martyr. Now listen to this. This is just one of the instances. There were many other folks whose names weren't recorded. I told you about Polycarp last week. Antipas' name is recorded down. In the midst of this, he would not bow to Caesar. He would not say that Caesar is Lord. So they wanted to make an example out of him. He could have compromised. He could have said, well, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was going to cost me my life. I didn't realize that I was going to lose my family, my children, my job, and everything that's important to me by just not saying Caesar is Lord. Forgive me. I will do that. I'll throw a little incense. God will understand. He'll forgive me. That's all he had to do. And so many people today are making those compromises. Well, the Word of God does say that, but you know, I might lose my job, so I'm going to go along with it. Well, the Word of God does say that, but God understands my situation, so I'm just going to compromise. And we keep compromising, and we keep compromising, and that's why the church is in the place it is today. Because we keep taking little steps back and little steps back. And at some point, we've got to plant our feet on the solid rock that is Christ and say, I'm not moving anymore. I'm not moving another inch, no matter what it costs me. We have been so blessed in this country that we've had it so easy for so long that we don't even know how to suffer right anymore. The air conditioner goes out and we're tore up. We have no idea how to suffer, but we better start learning because it's coming. And we need each other. In those times when that suffering really comes, you are going to need the church. It breaks my heart that so many people today take the church so lightly, but God is going to send a season where you're going to be glad you have a church because you're not going to survive without it. I can't survive without it now, so I can only imagine how it will be when things get tough. But you're going to need the church, so you better get rooted into one now. And really start to be faithful about it. But here's the thing with Antipas. He wouldn't obey. So you know how they decided to kill him? They put him inside this big statue of a brass bull. And they rolled this thing over a bunch of logs. And they lit it on fire. And they cooked him inside of this thing. They roasted him to death inside of this bull. Can you imagine the suffering and the pain and the agony that this man went through? Now, I don't know how many of you follow me on Facebook or on Facebook. But I shared a little video yesterday, and I told you that I would touch on this. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is biblical. I'm not saying that when John was writing this that he was thinking about this time period 1,900 years later. But I think this is interesting. And if nothing else, I do believe it shows that spirit of Antichrist, that spirit of the enemy that is behind all this evil. So in the 1800s, Germany found Pergamum, and they did a lot of excavating. One of the things that they found was that big altar to Zeus. They took that thing apart piece by piece and brought it back to Germany and made a museum of it. About a hundred years later, there was a guy that was rising to political power by the name of Hitler. And he wanted to have an arena, if you will, where he could go and speak and give his, give his lectures and different things. And if you watch some of the videos of Hitler, you'll see it. Behind him was this huge wall. It almost looks like these, these pipes rising up. And they would shine these lights on those things hundreds of feet up into the air. So it was almost like a, a heavenly aura around him. And in this huge stadium, if you watch the times when he gives these speeches, especially to the, to the youth, to the Nazi youth, you see them all lined up worshiping this man as he speaks. And he said that in the middle of this thing, he wanted... He didn't use the word pulpit, but that's basically what it was to deliver these messages from. So there was an architect in Germany who he recruited to build this thing. 
And what did that young man, that architect, use to design this platform for Hitler? The altar of Zeus. If you look at it, the structure, everything about it, and as Hitler stood and gave these speeches, and you can watch that video and, and see what I'm talking about, he would talk about the fact that the Jewish people were either going to fall in line or something greater was going to happen to them. Which, he didn't come out and say it, but history shows us what happened. The Holocaust. They wouldn't obey, they wouldn't do what he wanted, so he killed them. The word Holocaust, do you know what that word means? It's a Greek word that comes from the Hebrew for burnt offering. Antipas was roasted in an oven. Hitler slaughtered millions of Jews in the gas chambers and then sent them to the incinerators. Just think about that spirit behind these things. Think about the evil and the wickedness that would cause a man to take a fellow human being and view them as not even worthy of life and would torture them to death and then gas them and burn them, among other things. You don't think that there's an evil spirit behind this? You don't think that there's a real enemy named Satan behind these things, guys? We look at people and we say, how can they be so evil? How can they be so wicked? Because the one that has been a murderer from the beginning, the one that is the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, he's behind these things. And when you look at World War II, I don't think you can come to any other conclusion than to say that Satan himself was at the forefront of the evil of the Nazi regime and what they did to the Jewish people. So I just wanted to share that with you to get this idea that we are fighting a fight against a real demonic kingdom. And so now that Jesus has said these things, he is going to turn to them and say, I've got some faults with you. You've, you've stood strong. You've, you've taken a stand. You've even given your life in some situations. But I have a few things against you. The name Pergamum means a citadel, a high tower. But it can also mean to be married, to be united. And I believe that the Lord is going to say here, you're unequally yoked. You're joined to the world in some ways. Why do I say that? Well, look who he mentions in these, in these next verses in verse 14. He says, I have a few things against you. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You may not know who Balaam is. You can read in Numbers 22 through 25 about Balaam. Balaam was a false prophet. Balaam was approached by Balak, who was the king of Moab. Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel, God's people. Balaam kind of took a bribe and said, okay, I'll do that. He tried four times to curse Israel. And every time that he tried to curse them, they were blessed. And so finally, he decided, well, if I can't curse them, I'll corrupt them. And he led them astray. And how did he do it? Sexual immorality and idolatry. The same things today that the enemy uses against people. Looks a little different than it did all those years ago, but it's no different. If the enemy can get you worshiping another god and allowing your passions, your fleshly passions, which usually play out in some kind of sexual gratification, he can get you. And he can keep you away from the Lord. That's what was going on there. Listen, in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, this is what was going on with them. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men... 
began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Compromise. People of God, pagan people, intermingling sexually. He invited them to sacrifice to their gods. Idolatry. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel, just like Pergamum and just like people today, yoked themselves to the Baal. And the Lord's anger burned against them. It's the same game that the enemy is playing, but it's not a game, guys. There are eternal consequences to this thing. But the enemy uses these same schemes. He just repackages them, and people continue to fall for them. He led these people astray. He sent somebody that would corrupt them. And my goodness, there are so many people today that want to pull you away into corruption. They want to take you in a wrong direction. He also says in verse 15, we've, we've seen this name a few times, some of you are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's not a clear understanding of exactly what that was, but the name means to conquer the people. A lot of folks believe that this is really where the separation between clergy and lay people took place so that these bishops, overseers, whatever, were basically lording themselves as little gods over the people and demanding they do certain things according to what they wanted. And we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, and I'll say it again from the pulpit. Please don't ever worship me. I make a terrible God. There is one God to be worshipped. I'm thankful that you put faith in me and confidence in me, but I'm not God. I will fail you at times. I will be wrong at times. There is one that is never wrong. There is one that is always faithful. So please keep your eyes on Him. I, I'm trying to do my best to walk with Him and shepherd according to His Word, but... I'm not the one here today to be worshipped at all. And so he says to them, because of these worldly things, we've heard this over and over, and it's my challenge to you today, if you're not where you need to be, repent. Repent. He says, if you don't repent, now notice this, I will come to you soon and war, war against who? What's it say? I'll war against them. I'll war against them. He is going to pour out his wrath on those that are causing the problem. Also, does that not sound like what he's going to do at the end of time? He's going to remove his church and pour out his wrath on them. He's going to war against them. There is coming a swift and severe punishment on those that would lead God's people astray. You have an obligation to know the truth so you don't get led astray. But my goodness, if you're a teacher or a preacher or someone that's trying to go out and deceive people wrongly with the Word of God, what a judgment awaits you. It's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I would not want to stand before Him and know that I willingly and willfully led people astray. That's a dangerous place to be. He tells them in verse 17. We get down towards the end of this thing here. He says to them that I am going, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says to the one who conquers... I will give him some hidden manna. Obviously, I think a lot of us understand what the manna was in the Old Testament. God fed his people with that. He says, I'm going to provide for you. That's what he's saying. I will provide. I will give you the things that you need. Remember, these believers were excluded from everything. The Roman guilds wouldn't let them work. The Jews wouldn't let them worship. The temples were closed to them. They had to go underground and hide in house churches to worship. They were ostracized from everything. And so God says, I will provide for you. Don't give in to these things. Don't dine at those tables of devils. Trust me for your provision. Church, we can trust Him today. For everything that we need, we can trust Him. 
Not only that, but he says that I'm going to give you, uh, this is a passage that's been interesting to me over the years. He says, I'll give them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is that? Well, I think if we go back and, and look at what that was in old times, and biblical times, it might help us to possibly understand what it is. When you went to a court of law and the judge pronounced a verdict, sometimes there was a container with two stones inside of it, a black stone and a white stone. And he'd take off that lid and, and drop one of those out. Obviously, the black stone meant you were guilty. The white stone meant not guilty. We know in Christ that we are not guilty. There's no condemnation in Christ. That white stone could be a declaration of forgiveness, a declaration of justification for us as God's people. Also, at times in, in the games, the games were a big deal back then. There was a white stone called a tessera. And that tessera, if you were the victor, you were given that stone and it gave you access to everything in the town for that period of time. Free of charge. We've been granted access to heaven through Christ Jesus. We have access to that heavenly city. That stone could represent that. The freedom and the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. And finally, it was given a white stone to the gladiators that won in battle. On that stone was written Spectacus. It meant that your valor had been proven. That you had fought well and won the game. That if you'll stand with Christ, He stands with us. Perhaps that's the meaning. But regardless of what it means, it's a good thing for God's people. It's a new name. We're new creatures in Christ. He's turned us into something different because we have a relationship with Him. What a great, great blessing for us and for them who stood faithful. But I want to close now with... with a little bit of application for us because there's so much worldliness in believers today. And I want you to just consider these things as a warning as we close. I already hit on this one, so I won't spend much time, but do you want to be known by Jesus, followers of Jesus, or do you want to follow the world? Are people surprised when you tell them you're a Christian? I had no idea you were a believer. Why not? They should know. The world is screaming at you every day to do this and do that, to follow this and follow that. And the still small voice is speaking to you every day to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him. Which voice are you listening to? Young people, what voice are you listening to? What are you filling up your lives with? What are you allowing to consume you every day? Here's the elephant in the room, and I'm just going to go ahead and tackle it because it needs to be talked about more in churches. And that is sexual sin. Sexual sin that runs rampant in most churches today. It's not politically correct, but I've never really worried about that. God created marriage. God created it as one man and one woman. God created genders, male and female. That's His plan. You can, you can disagree, you can dislike it, but you can take it up with Him. And you will take it up with Him one day if you don't want to see it His way. I'm speaking this word. It's His authority. I agree with it wholeheartedly. The world doesn't like that. The world wants to silence that. The world wants to cancel you out if you don't believe that. They may block you on Facebook and Twitter, but as long as I have an audience to preach to, I'm going to preach what the Word of God says. And that's the reality of it. Because in, in Romans 1, guys, I want you to understand this. In Romans 1... The climax of sexual sin is seen. When, when a nation or a people wants to indulge in every kind of sexual immorality that it can, 
God will allow that to take place, but it carries consequences with it. In Romans 1, it talks about the fact that they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They worshipped the creature rather than the creature. They did things with their bodies that were unnatural. And over and over, what is the warning in there? God gave them up. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. When you continue to go in an opposite direction of God, there'll come a time He's not obligated to keep dealing with you forever. There's a line. I don't know where the line is, but I wholeheartedly believe there's a line you cross. And when God gives you up, it's too late. It's too late. I know that a lot of times we say, well, as long as you're breathing, you can be saved. And I pray that that's true for you. But I don't know where the line is that some folks cross, but there is a line. And I believe your heart becomes so hard. Pharaoh's a good example of that. Your heart becomes so hard that you're, you're past the point of no return. And it usually takes place with these sexual sins. You reach out into this deviancy and you go as far as you can to indulge your flesh. And God says, okay, you want to live for the flesh? There you go. The flesh is what you'll have and you'll reap your reward of that. I've never seen a false religion yet that doesn't not only deny doctrine, but that doesn't have some kind of sexual deviancy. David Koresh, Jim Jones, every one of multiple wives indulged in all kinds of sexual fantasies. It's part and parcel with all this false teaching. You see how many preachers are falling away into sexual immorality. That's the sin that most people will indulge in. It's the sin that the enemy wants to get you to give into. And so don't ever think that you can't fall, church. As a child of God, I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but there is real danger out there. You are called to live holy lives. You're called to live separate lives. We've got to take a stand. We've got to decide. Are we a worldly church or are we a Jesus-following faithful church? Which one are we? Which one are you? I want you to understand. Today is the day where we need to take an honest evaluation of our lives. Or better yet, let the Holy Spirit take an honest evaluation of your life. I'm asking you as we give this invitation, I'm going to invite our praise team to come. Would you pray this prayer today and ask the Lord to open your eyes to see you as He sees you. To show you the areas in your life where you've tucked sin away and tried to manage it and excuse it and justify it. To show you places where He's called you to serve that you're unwilling to serve. To show you places where you can be a help to others. Maybe you have excelled in certain areas. There's people in this room that need you, that need your counsel, that need your help. And you keep putting it off. We need you. Now more than ever, church, we need you to take a stand. There's folks dying every day lost. There's people in this room that need discipled. We need you. Would you answer that call? Father, we come to you today asking you to move in this invitation, move in our hearts, Lord. All of us have sins. All of us have struggles. All of us have places where you probably challenged us and we fall short, Lord. Help us today to admit those things, to confess those things, to lay those things down, to get serious about it. Lord, I know many times people are scared to come make that commitment because they say, well, what if I don't live up to it? What if I fall short? You get back up and you start walking again. You are going to fall short. We all need grace and we all need help. But Lord, that's no excuse for us to not step out of the boat and say, I'm going. He's called and I'm coming. He loves me and he promised to forgive me and I'm going to take him up on that offer. Lord, help us today to hear your spirit, to have heard your word, and to obey today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we sing, as we stand, don't wait, you come.